I'm Emily Calandrelli, host of Exploration Outer Space, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. so much right now and we're seeing so many wonders and we have so much ability that as long as we are curious, as long as we do not let immediate local problems prevent us from keeping our eyes to the horizon and beyond, as long as we keep exploring and as long as we keep hoping, uh, I think our future is still going to be there and it's still going to be a good one. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast, and Twitter at the GBB Podcast, and anywhere you can get this podcast, that's where you can find us. Awesome. So we're excited. Jamie, last week, we're excited. We're always excited. Last week, we, we tried this new sound recording system for the first time, and after, are you going to give them a free, are, a free pitch we're in right year now? Three? Are we in year three now? We're in year three now. We, we yeah. are in year three. <laughs> and we're, we're finally figured out how to make it sound, how to make it sound like we're in the same room with each other. And I'm really excited. <laughs> you guys were really bad at this podcasting thing. I don't understand how we're still around three years. I don't understand how we've gotten some of the guests we've gotten because Quite honestly, we really don't know what we're doing. <laughs> you know, people, you see a lot of like people who like online or questions that are asked to people who have been around for a while or have popular shows like, oh, I have this idea for a, for a show, but I don't know how to get started or, or I'm not sure what to do. Do you have any advice? And, you know, the advice is usually if just do it, just start, you buy a mic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, whatever one you can afford, get a good mic. You don't need fancy software and just start doing it and putting it out there and you'll find an audience and you'll, you'll get going. And that's kind of what we did. Like we just, <laughs> we just started doing it and it grew into this thing that we weren't planning on from when we started and it developed and we still really just kind of don't know what we're doing. And we kind right. of make this up as we go every week. Well, sometimes I get messages from people and they're like, so you got to tell me what equipment do you use? How do you record? And I can imagine, I can imagine what they're thinking when I'm like, Man, we use Skype, and I have a fifty dollar mic, and Jamie has a Yeti, and that's that's what we use. <laughs> They're probably just like, "What?" Yeah, you basically just ans- answered any question. If anybody wants to yeah. know what our setup is, there you go. Like we are, we are about as low tech as you could possibly be. Like we've both got mics. You know, we're not yeah. just using like a built in laptop mic. We've we've both no. got halfway decent mics. Um, yeah, we, we use Skype to connect or Google Hangouts or, you know, whichever is, is better at the time. And, um, 
you know, we've paid, I, I've paid through Skype to have a, uh, mm-hmm. a phone number so people can call in and we can record and we just kind of record and Justin works on magic editing and, <laughs> and that's it. And we, we really are just figuring this out as we go. And so how do we start talking about this? Oh, the, the, that we now sound better yeah. during our intros. Exactly. Yeah. So now we have a fancy, I won't get into the boring details, but we have a fancy internet program that lets us do it better. Anyway, Jamie, <laughs> science. Hey, good segue. Science. <laughs> So <laughs> Jimmy did this week's interview solo, and so but why don't you tell us about the interview and what we can expect this week? This week I was I talked to Phil Plate, who um, if you don't know the name, you maybe know his moniker online. He goes by the Bad Astronomer. Uh, he has been around um, in, in in internet terms. Uh, he's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 started a website, and um, and he was like, I guess. Probably I'm making this up, but he's probably one of the original Twitter uh, handles. Um, but he has been around, um, sort of demystifying astronomy and science for for the mainstream um, for years now. And he, you know, we we've talked to quite a number of people now who this is what they do. You know, they take these complex uh, scientific ideas and they they have this gift for communication where they can they can translate it into to words and, and and ideas that most people who may not be able to get the uh you know the arcane scientific concepts but they can understand you know we've had neil degrasse tyson and we had uh, emily calandrelli and that's what they do is they take these um the the these hardcore science concepts and theories and they they translate it so you and i can understand it um and and phil does much the same thing you know he used to work for uh he he worked a little bit on on hubble we talk about that in our in our conversation and um yeah he's he's just has this gift for taking science and astronomy and planets and planetary science and just writing these compelling um articles and and making arguments in defense of science in that so people who don't necessarily have a science background can understand um and uh so yeah this conversation we cover a lot of ground you know we talk about um the current state of science we we talk about hubble we talk about where he's currently writing and what's going on with him we talk about spacex we talk about um science fiction you know we talk about a lot of really good stuff and this is a i'm gonna shut up now because we had a long conversation (laughs) so i don't want to make this episode that much longer but um it's really good one it's we had a really great conversation awesome so we're gonna go play that for you right now andreas on twitter this one is for you (laughs) hope you enjoy Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I know uh, every day is pretty busy for you, so I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's nice to be back on Geek Dad. It's great to have you back. Um, I, I need to start out, uh, and apologies to anybody listening, but I need to start out by saying Wahoo Wah, and it's always nice to talk to another Wahoo. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think about myself that way anymore. I, well, you, really you graduate students yeah. don't tend to think of themselves as, as Wahoos, but, you know, you are. <laughs> well, plus it was... Oh, years yeah, ago, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it's changed since then. It, it has, and I don't know if you've been back there since. You go, you go back now, and it looks almost exactly the same, except for a few new buildings. But if you go back to the lawn, it looks exactly the same. 
I actually was back a couple of years ago to give a talk, and um, there are some things that are completely different. Yeah. Uh, but I went back to a place I used to live, and it was. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, I have a wahoo stuck in my throat. Um, <laughs> where was I? Uh, I went back to a place where I lived, and it was it was exactly the same. Yeah. And that was creepy, like stepping into a time machine. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, Charlotte, <laughs> Charlottesville is like that. It's kind of weird. Um, let's quickly talk uh, as we're talking today. NASA is having a big announcement, so I figure we should probably at least mention that it might be old news by the time people listen to this, but we'll still talk about it. So NASA is right now making this announcement that they found seven Earth-like, potentially life-habitable planets surrounding um, a smaller star than ours, but fairly close, relatively speaking. Um, how big is this? Like, how, how major is this in terms of discoveries? Well, let me be very clear. Um, a lot of people are saying Earth-like, uh-huh. and we don't know that. Right. All we know is that they're Earth-sized. Uh, these, these are seven planets orbiting a star called TRAPPIST-1. TRAPPIST is the name of the telescope that discovered these planets. And um, they range in size from a little bit smaller to a little bit bigger than the Earth. And we know their orbital periods, which in turn tells us how close they are to the star. And this is a, a, a dinky little red dwarf, an incredibly faint star. Um, but even though uh, it's very faint, these planets are very close in. And so we can guess from their distances from the star what their temperatures are. And again, you know, we don't know. Venus is only slightly closer to the sun than the Earth, mm-hmm. and yet it's tremendously hotter because of its atmosphere. We don't know if these planets even have atmospheres. We don't know if they're made of dark material or light material or anything like that. So guessing their temperatures is the best we can do. But starting from those principles and saying they're probably metal and rock, we know how big they are, how close they are to their star, uh, we can sort of kind of guesstimate their temperatures and three of them fall in the range of distance from the star where, uh, given the conditions we would expect, the surfaces would be able to sustain liquid water. We call that area from the star the habitable zone. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really cool. You have three planets like that. Now, technically, Mars, Venus, and Earth are all in the habitable zone of the sun, and only the Earth is habitable. But you never know. Um, having seven planets around one star is pretty amazing. Seven Earth-sized planets is more amazing. And the best news here is that this kind of star is among the most common in the galaxy. They vastly outnumber stars like the sun. So just statistically, we might expect to find billions of planets, hundreds of billions of planets like this in just our galaxy. From what I understand, too, because it's such a small dwarf um relatively dim, not very hot star, that this was not something that astronomers had been necessarily looking for. Like, this was not on high on the list of, of stars that we thought that planets would be surrounding. So this has opened up a huge door, is what you're saying. Um, yes and no. I mean, originally when we started looking for planets around stars, the story's actually a little bit complicated, but we started looking around stars like the sun, a little bit hotter, a little bit cooler, but pretty much like the sun, because, you know, you look where you think you're going to find stuff when you don't know if anything's really there yet. Once we started finding them, the search started broadening. There are actually uh, uh, observations that target these small stars and have found planets around them before. So this is not the first low mass, what we call a red dwarf star, Uh, with planets around it, but it is the first that has seven. Um, We've discovered other systems with um, many planets before, including one that has nine planets. Um, So this isn't 
this isn't special that way either. I mean, we found multiple planets before. But you put all of these things together, low-mass yeah. star, a lot of Earth-sized planets, it's close by. All of this together makes this a pretty cool discovery, and uh, I'm really happy about it. And, and again, to be clear, we don't know if any of these things are habitable, nothing sure. like that. But the, the other good news is that because this star is so close, 40 light years, um, we can uh, use some other telescopes to observe it. And uh, with James Webb Space Telescope launching in 2018, this gigantic infrared telescope, which is going to go out into space and kind of be even more powerful than Hubble in many ways, um, that's going to be a, a big deal. That'll be able to maybe detect atmospheres around some of these planets if any of them have them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is really That is exciting. We're going to start characterizing the physical characteristics of these planets. Yeah. One of the things that um, kind of caught my attention as I was just reading the, the initial reports coming out of the press conference was that um, if you were to stand on, because they're all so relatively close to one another, that if you were to stand on the surface of one of them, you would be able to see all of the others at some point in the sky, and they would all be about moon size or a little bit smaller. So you'd be able to see the other planets. But because they're all, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, they're all as close to their sun as Mercury is to ours, even though this, that star is much smaller, how big would that, that star, that sun, be in the sky if you were standing on the surface of one of those planets? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, that's, that's something you'd have to calculate. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, this is the kind of thing you can do really quickly. The star is about a... Tw um, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sorry, I'll have to edit that. Um, that's a good question. I haven't actually done the calculation, but it's the kind of thing you can kind of sort of do in your head. Um, the star is a little bit less than a tenth as wide as the sun, um, and these planets are just a, a few million kilometers from the star itself, which means they're 50, 75 times closer than the Earth is. So the star would actually... Uh, from the ones that are close in would be a lot bigger than the sun. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, the, these planets are all orbiting much, much, much closer than Mercury orbits the sun. Even the most distant one, they're, 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 they're named uh, by letters, Trappist 1, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. H is the farthest one out, and it's still only about, I think, 5 million miles or something like that uh, from, yeah. from the star. So, uh, yeah, even from the farthest one, the star is going to look bigger than the sun does from earth but the star is so much dimmer it's it's not putting out nearly as much heat so um that star that planet might be too cold for life as we know it yeah but but since we started discovering these planets we've also learned that you don't have to have a lot of sunlight don't the surface doesn't have to be warm for there to be liquid water we've got moons around saturn and uh jupiter as well as um probably uranus and neptune that are icy moons that have oceans of water under their surface and may very well have life. And these are way past yeah. where we would think you could have liquid water, uh, at least the way we used to think of it. Uh, now we understand that uh, nature is more clever than we are. We're always kind of lagging behind, making discoveries, uh, finding out what it's doing, sneaking stuff past us. And so in this case, um, you never know. I mean, all of these planets could be habitable in one way or another. Um, but, you know, at a distance of 400 trillion kilometers, it's going to take us a long time to get there. 
that's a long day. Exciting stuff for the future. For the next few years, though, as we as we train our telescopes on those planets and that star, it'll sure, sure, definitely something I'm going to be following closely. Yeah, me too. It's pretty interesting, and it's it's the follow ups that I'm excited about. What yeah. we'll be detecting on these planets over the next few years using different telescopes. Absolutely. Um, so let's shift gears away from current, you know, breaking news. Uh, so. Obviously, we're on Geek Dad, so let's talk a little bit about something that hits a little bit close to home. Um, so, my kids right now are super into science and astronomy as much as it's possible for a five and eight year old to be. Um, and and I really great. want I really want to get them a telescope. And you know, they love looking at the night sky. I really want to get them a telescope so they can sort of explore and, and make their own discoveries. But I kind of don't know what I'm doing with it. So I'm wondering what advice you would have for other parents who are just similarly befuddled. They're like, they really want to get their kids into it, but they're, you know, they're kind of confounded with, with the options and, and what they need to do to get to make that happen. Right. Um, that is a really good question. It's a very common question. And I will say this. Um, getting a telescope is difficult. It's not like going out and buying, um, oh, I don't know, just something off the shelf, yeah. uh, you know, like a shirt. Uh, it's more like buying a car. You know, what you buy depends on a lot of stuff. Like, do you want to look at the moon and nearby planets? and Or do you want to look at a really faint, difficult-to-observe objects? Are you just starting out? Um, how's your back? Do you have a strong back? Um, if, if your back's like mine, you don't want a big telescope because you can't lift it. Um, the best telescope is the one you use. Yep. So uh, you, there's always going to be compromises. Um, the prices go up really quickly, too. So um, what I tell people is if you have somebody, especially kids, interested in astronomy, the thing to do first is to get a pair of binoculars. You can find a good pair for – you can find a decent pair for 100 bucks or less. You can find a – starting to get pretty good uh, quality binoculars in the $200 range. And then you can look at the moon. Right now as we're talking, Venus is setting after the sun. It's up fairly high in the southwest sky. And um, with even a small pair of binoculars, you can see that it's a crescent. That doesn't happen too often. It has to be between us and the sun. And because of the geometry, it, it actually passes the Earth relatively quickly. So it only does this for a couple of weeks out of every orbit. But right now, literally, you know, it's, it's a good time to look at Venus. Um, Jupiter, you can see its moons. You can usually see um, uh, a little bit of um, the belts that go across it. You can see Saturn's rings. Now, mind you, this is just with binoculars. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a great view, but you're going to see them. And then if uh, the interest lasts, especially with kids, mm -hmm. there are inexpensive small telescopes you can get. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorites to recommend is a group called Astronomers Without Borders. Right? They're like Doctors Without Borders. Right. This, is a, this is a really great group of people. They go to countries um, where there's sort of an underserved population. Sometimes these are war and torn places or they're just poverty stricken or whatever. And they go there with their telescopes and show people the sky. Uh, they're doing wonderful work. They, it's a nonprofit, and they partnered with uh, Celestron, a telescope maker, to make a uh, a telescope called the One Sky, and it's it's two hundred dollars. So it's really not much more than a pair of binoculars. It's got a small mirror, but it's a tabletop telescope. It sets up in a matter of you know a minute mm -hmm. once you've got it put together, which is not hard. And I I, I have one. I've been using it, and it's wonderful. Um, look at the moon. Look at Venus. Stuff like that. So. These, it's sort of a grab-and-go. Yeah. And then finally, to end this, um, if you type in – if you go to Slate.com, which was my old website, 
back in December of 2015, I wrote a frequently asked questions list, basically, a telescope buying guide. So if you type in fill plate telescope fac into Google, I figure I figure you'll find you'll it. You'll find and it. it and we'll link to it. I'll there. find it and link to it, too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, what's your elevator pitch in support of funding space exploration, since that's apparently still in doubt? <laughs> um, an elevator pitch? That's a tough one. Because there's <laughs> things to do. And it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody who might be in power now, yeah. I would say, listen, when you invest in space exploration, when you invest in science, your return on investment is anywhere between a factor of three and 20. That's just for space exploration. So for every dollar you invest in the space program, you get three to $20 back over time. And you don't know what it's gonna be. You don't know if it's gonna be that probe to Jupiter or building Hubble or whatever. But overall, uh, investing in NASA, investing in the National Science Foundation uh, and those groups, makes you more money even than investing in 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 funding in in like you know your IRA or something like that so we should be doing this um if you're talking to somebody who's a little more idealistic it's it's in some ways it's easier in some ways it's harder you can say listen this is what we do we are curious animals we want to understand what's going on around us and uh by exploring the world around us we learn about this kind of stuff and hey you know what we find out that there are existential threats to our species. The ozone hole that was discovered um, a few decades ago, that was a big deal. Uh, the ozone layer over the Earth protects us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Very dangerous to lose that. That means more uh, skin cancers, uh, die-offs of, of um, plant life that moves up the food chain. Um, we detected that. We figured out what to do about it. There was legislation that was passed by the Reagan administration, and now the ozone hole is um, is on the rebound. It's getting better. We actually did that to ourselves. It was our own uh, carbon uh, fluoro, uh, uh, fluorocarbon, C, uh, CFCs, in propellants like hairspray and stuff like that, going up into the atmosphere and, and destroying the ozone. Science discovered the problem, uh, and then legislation fixed it. And we know that there are other things that can happen. Asteroid impacts, uh, hey, climate change, if you, if you understand that climate change is real. We need to be exploring this stuff so that we can understand these threats and fix them. Yeah. I hope it's a long elevator ride. That was about 20 floors. That was okay. <laughs> um, I could probably be brief. I need to practice that. That's okay. Sometimes you can't be brief. Sometimes you need to just constantly. corner people and convince them. Um, so... You, over the years, um, you've made a name for yourself by writing about pseudoscience and correcting misconceptions and talking about <clears throat> bad astronomy <laughs> um, that we see you know, around us in popular culture and elsewhere. How frustrating, though, is it for you that there's still such a need to correct these misconceptions and that there's still just such a, a general ignorance of, of science among, among people in general? Uh, that's a... That's a little bit of a tough question because you just know that they're going to be the same things over and over and over again. And you kind of get not inured to it. You get used to it at least. You know, it's, it's just one of these things where we, you see it over and over again. And sometimes you just have to shake your head and go, yeah, yeah, still people who think the moon landing's faked. Um, uh, flat Earth people seem to pop up every now and again, and I get a flood of tweets and emails. Are you going to talk to this guy? Like, why would I talk to that guy? Um, 
this this person is thinks the earth is flat there is I mean, that is such a ridiculous idea that it is used as a standard phrase for ridiculous ideas mm -hmm. you know thinking that climate change isn't real is like thinking the earth is flat um, and so I'm not going to waste my time talking to folks like that. That's that's more of a religious belief than a than anything they've talked themselves into because of uh, uh, because of uh, you know analyzing stuff critically. Um, there's also new stuff that comes along that makes me want to bang my head against the desk uh, because uh, it just seems so silly. And and there are people who claim every asteroid that passes this is going to hit us. Um, and, you know, there's this zero gravity day, which started as a joke. Literally an April Fool's prank that people think really happens that on, on, on a certain day of the year, you can jump up and the, the gravity of Jupiter and Pluto will balance the Earth and you'll float. No. And there are people who really believe that. It comes up every year. And like I said, it was literally a, a joke hoax by an astronomer uh, decades ago. So, you know, that stuff comes around. You're just like, oh, God. But well, then there are the ones that are serious. You know, if somebody wants to think the Earth is flat fine um you know what uh, uh they'll never understand time zones and that's fine um but when somebody says i don't think climate change is real and that somebody is the president of the united states that somebody is the chairman of the house science space and technology committee when that person is a powerful senator um or you know in fact dozens of senators and and congress critters now um, and, and all of the cabinet appointees that, that Trump has put in. That's terrifying because this is, no kidding, an existential threat to humanity. We are already seeing the effects of this. We've known about the effects of this. Carbon dioxide levels are going up. Temperatures are going up. We're seeing more extreme weather, ocean acidification, sea level is rising. I mean, every single thing you can think of uh, that you would expect from climate change is happening from global warming. And yet these, these people have their heads stuck in the increasingly heat, uh, heated up sand. Uh, and they're, they're refusing to, not only are they refusing to legislate about it, they're legislating against it, preventing scientists from, from doing the work they want to do. And that to me is terrifying. That is the real threat of anti-science and uncritical thinking. So, I mean, but I mean, so it's 2017. We're still debating some of these most basic and fundamental aspects of science that we've known for centuries. You know, and like you said, this this uh, skepticism, this denial of science is it's it's taking hold not just in the general public but among our administration. I mean, what what gives you the strength to carry on in the face of all of that? What must be incredibly depressing news for somebody who's devoted his life to it? <laughs> well, since January twentieth of this year, that's been a much tougher slog. I, I can than imagine. Usual. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's just it's just stunning the the breadth of not just anti-science, but just anti-reality. Yeah. Just, you know, just statements that are fly in the face of the evidence that we have. Clear evidence. And you show this to the president and he just lies about it on TV. It's stunning. It's different than than the usual sort of presidential dodges of, of truth or or secrecy. Every president has to, you know, has secrets that they don't want out because that's just national security. And I get that. But to keep saying uh, you know the biggest electoral college win in history, and it's like no, not even in the past, not even you know, not even in the past two elections. Yeah. Uh, and it's just in here, and to deny just this evidence, somebody's closing their eyes and sticking their fingers in their ears and going la 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 la. You know what do you do about that? And the answer is well, you know what? There's not a whole lot you can do directly, um, but 
senators and representatives, uh, for those of us in America, they, they bow to pressure. If you pressure them enough, if you make the phone calls, you send the faxes, you go to the, uh, the town hall meetings, you go to the offices of your local reps, um, when, you know, when hundreds or thousands of people in their districts or their states contact them, they can listen. Now, a lot of, we're hearing right now of a lot of them running away, literally mm-hmm. trying to escape out of back rooms to, to get away from town hall meetings that have turned against them. Um, those people are cowards. Uh, those are um, what, what we might term assholes. Um, these, are, these are bad people. They are our elected representatives, and they are fleeing from their constituents because they can't face the truth. So what we need to do is rally ourselves, go on marches, make our voices heard, and then in 2018, vote those bastards out the door. Here, here. Tell us, tell us how Sorry, you really Sorry, am I being clear enough? <laughs> am I getting my point across there? You know, and a lot of people say I'm partisan. I'm like, you know what? I am not partisan. It is the GOP that made these yeah. partisan issues. Climate change was never a partisan issue. It should issue. not be a partisan issue. And it shouldn't be. It's yeah. just fact. But when it goes against uh, political ideology, that's when it becomes partisan. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, a lot of people want to say that people who are anti-vax against vaccinations – that that's more of a liberal than a conservative thing. And it turns out, no, it's not. That crosses all party lines, and we have evidence of this now because Trump is wooing anti-vaxxers at the moment. Yeah. So uh, that is, that's all over the place. A lot of liberals don't like it because you know there are chemicals in it, and a lot of conservatives don't like it because it's big government trying to tell you how to stay healthy. But you know this is, this is a marriage made in hell, uh, and, and the people who are going to suffer are little kids. Who, who need their vaccinations to, to keep them from getting preventable diseases. So, you know, this, this, that sort of thing crosses the aisle very easily. But most of this stuff is heavily partisan. And you know what? I don't, I don't give a damn if it's partisan. <laughs> if your representative is a Democrat or your representative is a, is a Republican yeah. and they're saying stuff that goes against what we know to be true and is in fact a threat, kick them to the curb. Yeah. Get rid of them. So with with staring down the next four years and this, you know, what's becoming a black hole of ignorance, have you found a silver lining? Like, have you found something that this is, well, at least there's this? Um, no. Or was it too soon? Just still too soon? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it, it's the, the good news comes when um, the fights work, when when you see. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people marching. Yeah. When you see uh, enough people getting together protesting uh, the anti-science trending that we're seeing and, and planning a big march, for example, on Washington and other cities spontaneously picking this up. When you see uh, uh, individuals, heroes, really, standing up against this. Uh, 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 Sally Yates, for example, um, who, who basically said this immigration ban is illegal. And and you know she got fired for it, uh, but uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of these individual people can can make things happen. You know the ACLU is out there fighting the good fight, um, and 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 then you know what uh, we keep raising a ruckus, and stuff shakes out. Yeah. So you know right now things may look bleak, but uh, what we I think what we'll find is that as we put the pressure on more and more of these. Uh, uh, these Congress people, uh, senators, representatives, the, the president, 
um, we will find more and more weaknesses, more and more places where we can dig in. And hopefully um, in the next couple of years, we can minimize their impact. And then in the midterm elections, uh, kick the bums out. You mentioned the science. That's my hope. You mentioned the science march. Are you going to one? Um, sadly, that is being scheduled at exactly the same time as the Silicon Valley Comic Con. Oh. Uh, the announcement for the march had not been made uh, when I accepted uh, going to the Comic Con. So what I'm hoping to do is while I'm in San Jose for that week, uh, maybe there will be something there I can do while I'm there. Yeah. I think you know it's a Comic Con and I'm there. To promote science, I'll be giving a talk, and there's some other organize uh, one for inside the the con. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's something we can do, um, and and figure it out. It's in April. Yeah. Uh, so there's still plenty of time. I'll you know I'll, I'll figure that out. Yeah. Um, I I watched your TED talk um from a few years ago now, um and in it it was it was I think meant to be slightly tongue in cheek, but it was a, a serious line. You said that the difference between us and the dinosaurs is that we have a space program and we can vote. Are you still that optimistic? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's still true. Yeah. Nothing's necessarily changed. Um, the, the, the real problem is that nothing there has necessarily changed. We're still not that much farther along with this than we have been for the past few years. Um, uh, NASA uh, just picked a couple of missions for follow-up uh, uh, space missions to, to investigate asteroids, actually. But one of the ones that they only kind of sort of said okay to was one to actually look for asteroids that pass near the earth they didn't cancel it but they didn't pick it either so it's sort of in an extended um exploratory uh, stage right now yeah. um and another there was another privately funded mission i'm actually not sure where that stands right now the b612 foundation has something called sentinel and um, they've been having uh, difficulty finding funding i believe i'm not sure about that don't quote me but you know we still have telescopes looking for these things. We are still building telescopes to look for near-Earth asteroids or comets that can hit us. Um, but I don't think a lot of progress has been made in what to do about it. Yeah. We need to have an actual mission uh, uh, built so that we can test it and smash into an asteroid that's otherwise safe so that we can see that we can do this if we need to. I don't want to be testing uh, previously untested hardware and software on a on a on an asteroid that's actually headed for Earth, I'd rather make sure we can do this first, so that when one does have our name on it, we'll be a little bit more confident we can push it out of the way. You mentioned telescopes. I know you used to work on the Hubble, um, and I've been a few times now to Goddard here in DC uh, to see the development of the Webb, and it's just it's it's gorgeous to look at. Is 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 yeah, it is. is one piece of art. It's just a beautiful uh, machine. Um, but I was wondering if you could. Um, quickly tell us like how different those two will be really in terms of somebody you know the general public who isn't really tuned into the science what are they going to notice about the two the images that are returning and the information that we get back um the the difference the main difference between the two is that hubble is designed to look at the kind of light that we see what we call visible light as well as just outside of the human range of vision in, in the infrared and the ultraviolet, just barely. Um, and it's also a relatively small telescope. The, the mirror is about two and a half meters, eight feet wide. James Webb Space Telescope, however, 
is actually tuned to look in the far infrared, much outside of what our eyes can see. So it's gonna, it, 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 while it can see the same sorts of objects Hubble does, galaxies, planets, and that sort of thing, it sees them differently and in many cases better. It can see, for example, warm dust, which is uh, uh, basically grains of soot and, and small dust grains that litter galaxies and, and are created when stars explode. And they trace where stars form. So that's, uh, JWST is going to see that a lot better than Hubble. Um, it'll be able to look at asteroids uh, and characterize them much better because asteroids are warm objects and emit infrared light. Um, they reflect visible light, but because they emit infrared, they're brighter in that part of the spectrum. JWST will be able to see them better. Um, planets orbiting nearby stars. Uh, stars put out a tremendous amount of visible light, and planets don't reflect much of it. A star can be a billion times brighter than a planet next to it. But in the infrared, stars aren't as bright. And so that drops from a billion to a factor of hundreds of thousands. And it, that still, still, still sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. But we have techniques that make that um, even better. Uh, and so uh, you build a telescope and, and you can observe these planets a lot more easily than you can in visible light. And, of course, the other thing is that JWST's mirror, James Webb Space Telescope's mirror, is much larger. It's six and a half meters, over 20 feet wide. And it's actually um, a series of 18 hexagonal mirrors, each a little over a meter wide, that fit together like a flower petal. Mm -hmm. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to launch with them all closed together. It's going to go out into, into space and then open up like a flower in the morning. Um, and uh, and be able to see all these all these amazing things, so they're 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 similar in that they're looking at a lot of the same objects, but they're different in what they are going to do. And the important thing is that for a while at least they're both going to be up observing at the same time, which means we'll have really good coverage of a lot of really interesting objects. And uh, it's when when the images come back, it's going to be amazing. The pictures of galaxies and uh, nebulae and everything are going to be spectacular, even more so, I think, than what we've seen from Hubble. Which is kind of unbelievable. Just seeing some of the images we've gotten from Hubble, it's like, how, well, how can we get anything really better than that or, or more mind-blowing, really? Well, people forget. I mean, I worked on Hubble before it launched, barely. Um, and I started my PhD work on it literally when it launched and then continue to work with it for 10 years. And it had been upgraded several times. It's orbiting the Earth, and we were able to send a space shuttle up there with astronauts to replace cameras and upgrade the technology. Won't be able to do that with JWST. It's going to be too far away. Mm -hmm. But over the 25 years, 27 years now, Hubble's been in orbit. Because of the upgrades in cameras and because of our better computers and techniques, you know, the images we get from Hubble now are so much better than they were back in 1991, 1992, that it's almost a completely different telescope. And, and JWST is going to be another step ahead than that. So it's going, to be, it's going to be ridiculous when we start getting images back from it. Is that a limitation of it, though? I mean, like you said, we, we've been able to go up to Hubble and, and change things out and update it and fix it when things go awry. But Webb is going to be, what, a million miles away, and we're not going to be able to just like fly a mission out there to fix it. So, I mean, if something goes That's wrong, right. we're kind of SOL. I mean, is, is how much of a limitation is that really? Well, you know, you hope it's not. <laughs> okay. You, know, you kind of hope it's going to work. Um, it's, it's a sophisticated telescope. I mean, we've built telescopes that open up in space. And, all, and, and a lot of the technology that's going into this has is, is been tested on other, uh, other missions in the past. 
But, you know, all together like this on this scale, uh, it's unclear. And it, hopefully it'll work. If it doesn't, that's going to be bad. You know, hopefully, you know, look, when they when they launched Hubble, it had a mirror in it with a flaw that that uh, wouldn't allow it to focus correctly. It was just a dumb mistake. Um, and for several years, we got uh, it, it, fuzzy images. But I have to say they were better than what you could do from the ground. But for what we were hoping, it wasn't as good. And then they went up and, and fixed it. They replaced um, a lot of the hardware in it and, and made it better. With JWST, we can't do that. So, you know, you kind of hope it's going to work. Or if it doesn't work in some way, it's not going to cripple the mission. We've got, for example, um, there's a Juno spacecraft. It's the yeah, Juno spacecraft orbiting that. Jupiter right now. Yeah. And um, it's returning phenomenal science, including amazing images, on this really weird, uh, almost two-month-long looping orbit around Jupiter. It was supposed to orbit Jupiter like that twice and then fire its engines and drop down into a much tighter orbit around the planet. But a couple of stuck valves have prevented it from doing that. And so the science we're getting back from it isn't quite what we wanted, but the engineers back here have said, you know what, we, we just can't be sure we can fix these valves. And if we try to fire the engine, things could go catastrophically wrong. So you know what, we're good. Yeah. Leave it in this orbit, get the science we can, and we'll be happy. And so you kind of, you know, if you're going to have a failure on a mission, you hope it's that kind of failure where you can still do a lot of good work. The uh, but that Juno mission was extended beyond what it was supposed to have been, right? Aren't we already into extra time, even if it's not as robust as they wanted? Uh, a lot of missions have sort of a, a baseline mission, and then it gets extended. I, You know what? I don't think that's true for Juno. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But when you look at something like um, the rovers on Mars, oh, uh, yeah. Opportunity... Uh, and Spirit, although Spirit's not working anymore, and Curiosity. Opportunity is still working. I can't even, re I can't even remember when that thing was launched. It's, it's been up there for like well over a decade. And um, it was only supposed to last for three months. So it's been extended over and over again. Cassini orbiting Saturn has been extended over and over again. You know, if you're going to spend two, three billion dollars or more on a mission, most of that is just building it and getting it to where it's supposed to go. It's relatively cheap to keep it running. So, yeah, keep it running as long as you can get science out yep. of it yeah. uh, until, you know, the fuel runs out. Like Cassini is running out of fuel. And once that happens, they're going to drop it into Saturn itself. They're going to let it burn up in the atmosphere um, for two reasons. One is that you don't want it smacking into a moon and possibly contaminating that moon with our, our bacteria. Um, but the other one is you can get more science out of it that you couldn't get otherwise. Yeah. We're going to be beaming back data as this thing plunges through Saturn's atmosphere. And that's that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So take it. Definitely. Um, realistically, you mentioned, you know, the, the presence of, of liquid water farther out in our own solar system than we originally thought possible. But realistically, what are the odds that life exists on Europa, which is sort of the one moon that everybody points to as having the highest potential? I would say it's between zero and a hundred percent. I mean, you can't you can't know. I mean, before we before we even knew there was water on Europa or under Europa or any of these moons, you would have said zero. Yeah. Uh, especially for Europa, Europa is orbiting Jupiter, which has very strong radiation fields around it due to its intense magnetic field. And so, if you were to stand on the surface of Europa, uh, you know, you'd die. Um, and, and not just because it's cold and has no air. Um, the radiation, you'd get a lethal dose of radiation relatively quickly. But ice, it turns out, is a really good shield against that kind of radioactivity. And the ice shell on Europa could be several kilometers thick. So if there's an ocean under there, and we know there is, 
um, it's protected from that radiation. But the ice on the surface and the water under the surface um, can uh, talk to each other. There are cracks in the, in, in the ice, and so that water bubbles up, and then some of that material gets hit by Jupiter's radiation field that basically tears apart the molecules and they rebuild themselves. Uh, and you can get complex organic molecules that are then basically swept back down into the ocean. And we also think that Europa might have a rocky core. If that's the case, uh, it's possible that that ocean is salty. You get minerals in the core that then mix with the water and you get salt water. And it could have uh, uh, tectonic activity in the core that's venting materials into that ocean, like the black smokers you find on mm -hmm. the bottom of the Earth's oceans. And life thrives there on Earth. So, you know, I, I would not bet against there being life on Europa. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we find it, um, but I would certainly be very, very happy. Yeah. God, it's such... And not just Europa, Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, uh, Dione, Tethys, these are all icy moons. Uh, Pluto, Pluto, <laughs> Pluto's, what is it, 5 billion kilometers from the sun? And there's really good evidence that it has at least some liquid water under the surface. That's just that just boggles my mind. Like I don't understand I that at all. That really shocked me. I wasn't expecting that at all. I thought it would be too small; it'd be frozen solid. Yeah. But you know, apparently there's some source of heat in the core, maybe radioactive uh, elements. That and because the the surface, the only way to explain a lot of features we see on the surface of Pluto that were returned by the New Horizons mission, is uh, is there being if not liquid, at least slushy ice under the surface. All right. It's very weird. It is very well, it's 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 exciting too. I mean, people. I mean, you think? Well, the thing is, like, especially now with, with, with politics overwhelming everything, it's so easy to say, like, oh, what a terrible time! It's it's so frustrating. It's so disheartening and dispiriting. And while that's true, it's also such an exciting time with respect to other things. You know, when you talk about medicine and healthcare and 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 science space exploration and just the general state of science like there's never been a more exciting time to be alive honestly i think that's true and it's it's a lot better than we tend to think yes there's a lot of proximate issues with the government uh uh, uh you know stepping on the throat of progress right now but globally we're seeing a lot of really good stuff poverty's down crime is down uh, uh a lot of a lot of bad indicators are down a lot of good indicators are up this, I'm hoping, is going to be a temporary hiccup because, because our technology and our, our ability to, to use that technology, and, and not just that, but, but our understanding of the universe such that we can create this technology or use it to even better understand the universe better, and I use better in there twice on purpose, um, we've never seen anything like this before, I, I think, in the history of humanity. And we're learning so much right now and we're seeing so many wonders and we have so much ability that as long as we are curious, as long as we do not let immediate local problems prevent us from keeping our eyes to the horizon and beyond, as long as we keep exploring and as long as we keep hoping, uh, I think our future is still going to be there and it's still going to be a good one. 
I, I, we've got a few more minutes, and I want to I want to ask about more optimistic things because I feel like we've dwelled too much on the negative. Sure. In the, in, I get it. Yeah, it's easy right now. It, it is it? way too easy right now. Um, one of them, it, it, this might not even have a have a positive, optimistic answer, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Knowing what you know about people, um, how do you think first contact would ultimately go down? Like, how would Earth react if 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 a ship just a, a, appeared in our atmosphere? Well, I think it's unlikely for a ship just to appear in our atmosphere. Um, there's a lot of first contact scenarios, and um, you know, the the spaceship landing on the White House lawn is a good one. It's a fun one. Um, but it, 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 there are two things going against that. One is that space is really big, which, you know, the joke is that's, that's why we call yeah, it space. Yeah. Um, and as far as we know, you can't go faster than the speed of light, which means that even a trip to the nearest star would take at least four years. And our galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across. Um, so, you know, getting here from another planet is a lot of work. It takes a huge amount of energy and a lot of time to get here. Now, who knows what aliens are like? Maybe they, they have lifespans of 10,000 years, whatever. But assuming that that's unlikely, it's a hell of a lot easier to, um, to talk across these vast distances using, for example, radio waves. Radio waves are easy to make. You, you, you don't need a sophisticated technology uh, compared to what we have now to do it. We've had radio uh, telescopes for close to 100 years now. Um, and... You can, you know, and the ability to find habitable planets also isn't as hard as you might think. Um, you know, we only invented the telescopes something like 400 years ago, and here we are finding planets around other stars. Um, it won't be that much longer before a lot of these planets we find we can characterize. We'll have big telescopes, we'll be able to look at their atmospheres, and, you know, we'll find one that's, you know, the right size and temperature and has the signature of oxygen in its atmosphere. Oxygen is very reactive. You wouldn't expect to see oxygen unless that is an indicator of life. Um, and so that's where you might want to send your radio signals. And you could easily build uh, a, a radio telescope or an array in space that could target a few thousand stars and send messages to them you know, every day or something like that. That's sort of the principle of contact, the mm -hmm. book, the movie. These aliens build a gigantic radio telescope which listens for radio waves from, from civilizations like us, and when it hears them, it sends it back with a message buried in it. That's all I'm gonna, that's all I'm gonna say about that. If you haven't read the book, go read the book. <laughs> it's an amazing book. And so it strikes me that that is most likely. There is one other scenario, and that is uh, Seth Shostak, who was an astronomer with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and an old friend of mine, you know, he, he's posited that if you build machines you can put those on rockets and send them to other stars, and they'll last for you know, a million years. Who cares? They're they're dormant until they get to a star system, and then they can they can find an asteroid, replicate themselves or whatever, um, and then launch themselves off to more stars. And so, in a, in a sense, it's like a virus. You can send out a hundred of these from your home planet, and each one of those hundreds will make hundreds more, and you can actually explore the entire galaxy in a relatively short amount of time, a few million years. I know a few million years is not short, but the galaxy is billions of years old. Um, we've had life on Earth for billions of years. So that's a drop in the bucket compared to the age of the galaxy. So um, it's kind of surprising we haven't been contacted by things like that now. It's maybe an indication that we're the first. But either way, he thinks that's the most likely scenario, is that we may get a ship passing through our solar system or even landing, but it won't be aliens. It'll be, it'll be their robots.
That's an interesting speculation. That really is. Now my mind is just running crazy with that idea. This, a ship of vi- viral robots expanding out throughout the universe. Yeah, and it's not, it's not ridiculous. It's not, you know, oh, that's just dumb. No, yeah. not at all. This actually, it's solid. It makes perfect sense. Um, there's it, None of this is outside the realm of the sort of technology we can either build or imagine building in the next few decades. So along those same lines, though, when you think about science fiction and all the tech that's available, you know, that's just made up out of thin air for sci-fi shows or movies or books or whatever, what do you think? What piece of sci-fi tech would fundamentally change humanity for the better? Like, what what do we need to invent to basically save ourselves? To save ourselves how? <laughs> well, I mean, with, a lot of different ways pick, we're in pick, trouble. Pick your, yeah, pick your name, your trouble, and then like what what one piece? If we could only invent one piece of sci-fi technology, whether it's possible or even plausible or or at oh, all, like what would solve the most problems with that one invention? Easy, easy, fusion power. Wow. Um, with fusion, fusion um, is a type of energy generation that the stars use. You're fusing hydrogen into helium or low mass elements into higher mass elements. Stars do this. It's what, it's what nuclear bombs do as well, thermonuclear weapons. You get a huge amount of energy out of a very small amount of mass. Um, that's super important because right now we're getting most of our energy from burning coal, which you get not much energy out of a lot of mass. It's very inefficient. Fusion would be able to generate that much energy much more easily. Um, not only that, but rockets work by basically heating up a gas and throwing it out the back of the rocket. In Newton's third law, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You throw something out the back of the rocket, the rocket moves forward. Um, the hotter you can get a gas, the faster it expands and blows out the back end, the faster your rocket can go. Um, if you can use fusion power to heat up a gas, you can heat it up tremendously hot and you get much more efficient rocket drives. And if we could build a fusion reactor and put it on a rocket, you could get to the moon in hours. You could get to Mars in days. Hmm. And you could actually get to the nearest stars in just a few years instead of a few tens of thousands of years. Um, that would It would open up clean energy on the Earth. It would reduce uh, global warming by a huge amount. And it would literally open up the planets and the stars. So yeah, I would say fusion power. How about that? That's a good answer. <laughs> It's um, the good answer. As a matter of fact, I think it is the answer to, to it, your question. It is the answer? Okay. Anybody who says something else is probably wrong. Uh, Unless you're worried about, you know, pandemics, and then, you know, that's not going to help as much. Okay. Finally, because um, I know we're running out of time. Despite the current political climate, despite all of the, you know, negative things that we've talked about, um, when you think about the current state of science and where we're going and what's on just over the next next horizon, realistically... What has you the most excited? Um, golly, that's a good question. Um, the technology right now that is exciting, but not in a in an oh my god kind of way, is how how much better we're getting at things like solar power and alternative energies. Um, that's very exciting because that is a technology that can really help mitigate climate change right now. That's a slow process, and so it's not like you wake up and go what. Look at this! It you know it, it takes time, but we're at the point now where generating power from solar panels is um, on a on an even footing with uh, fossil fuels. 
Um, and you hear a lot of people saying, oh, but we're we're subsidizing solar energy through the government. It's like, what do you think we're doing to the fossil fuel companies? <laughs> you know, my God, the taxes those guys are paying is not really much compared to what they're doing. Um, and so, you know, on an even footing, I mean, uh, you know, kilowatt hours per uh, or, or dollars per kilowatt hour. And they're about equal right now. So that's good. Um, but if you're talking about uh, a breakthrough technology, um, I, I, I love what's going on in astronomy right now. We're building bigger telescopes with more sophisticated technology. Um, we're able to better uh, investigate the universe around us. We, you know, we didn't know about planets orbiting other stars until 1992. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know about planets orbiting stars like the sun until three years later. And now we know of thousands. So the technology to be able to discover even more of these uh, and to actually look at these planets and know more about them than just, you know, they exist, which is in many cases about all we know. To be able to look at them and say, um, this planet has a surface temperature of this. It's got a chemical composition of that. There's, you know, it's an, an atmosphere of mostly nitrogen and some oxygen. Um, that sort of thing is something I'm sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for. And that's only a few years away. Again, I said it before. It's so it's such an exciting time. Like yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, it's 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 impossible to predict almost it, sometimes. Like what's what's going to be the next great discovery and like where we're headed in those next few years. It's just it really is exciting. Um, yeah, I agree. Phil, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has just been amazing. I wish I wish we could have you back and you know go over the other half of the questions that I didn't get a chance to ask. <laughs> well. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. You know, and just, just mirroring. I love these guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Emily Calandrelli, and Phil Plate because I am the guy person that they are explaining it for. <laughs> I'm the layman that needs <laughs> science explained, and you know, it's really, it's really great that they're doing what they do because it can be overwhelming if you don't. If you don't think you know what they're talking about or you can't understand the science terms, it can be really overwhelming, especially if you want to know. <laughs> so it's really great. I love it. Yeah, for sure. And the problem is that, you know, people who might not have that scientific background or, you know, like you were saying, like, I want to know, but I, I don't even know how to ask the questions or, I'm you know, it shuts you down. Like if you hear a conversation yep. or if you, you read a conversation, it's like you're less likely to become involved in that conversation or ask exactly. the questions that you want to have answered because you think like, oh, they're just going to laugh at me because I don't understand. Yeah, no, I exactly. That's how I feel in a lot of situations, even on this podcast, when I'm talking <laughs> to super creative people. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I have no idea, man. You're the expert. What's that? What, what's Back the phrase? You know, you know what? You know, my motto is that that phrase, fake it till you make it. Exactly, I'm, I yeah. still haven't made it, but I am. I'm getting really good at faking it. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Every everything I do creatively, that's the way it is. <laughs> All right. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening this week. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB podcast. Let's keep the conversation going there. Let us know what you thought of this week's show. And I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. And we will see you next time right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. podcast. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad. I love this new recording software, too, because I can do things like this. Did it make that sound effect in your ear? No, I didn't hear anything. Oh, okay. I love... Okay, well, you're going to hear it when I record. Okay.
Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. What was okay. it? If do 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 do, it's like a ballpark sound effect, and there's uh, also one where I could go boom boom when we nice. tell jokes. No, I can't hear it. <laughs> it's gonna be on the recording. <laughs>